Last time, we spoke in length about the continued invasions of many places in Asia and the Pacific. The defenders of Hong Kong were pushed out of the new territories and the Kowloon Peninsula, and now had to defend the island of Hong Kong. There, they were pushed even further, off the north coast and deeper into the interior, but the Japanese were relentless and quickly took the Wangni Chung Gap, collapsing the island's coordinated defense. Over in the Philippines, the Japanese attacked the economic center of southern Mindanao Island, Davio, establishing a launching point for further attacks on Borneo. In Malaya, Yamashita's forces were devastating Percival's men, utilizing Blitzkrieg tactics to terrifying effect. They will continue to push south to lay siege to the Gibraltar of the east, the fortress of Singapore. Lastly, the new territory to this story, that of Borneo, made its appearance and the Japanese began to invade the British-held part of the island. Many of their oil fields were demolished, but now they were in the hands of the Japanese engineers, eagerly at work to pump the much-needed fuel into their war machines. Now we are going to continue all of these stories, and in particular, the story of Wake Island. This episode is The Fall of Wake Island. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can start, I just want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a little bit more about the history of the Second World War? I recommend their episode on the Battle of Stalingrad. It's really amazing. And of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many different historical events. So go give them a look over on YouTube. So please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and help us continue to produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I have episodes like China during World War I. Give it a look, it would mean a lot to me. Back on December the 11th, Admiral Kajioka's invasion force lost the destroyers Hayate and Kizaragi. Nine out of Kajioka's 13 ships were damaged, and the Japanese losses were never reported. But they probably were in the range of about 500 dead, and twice that in wounded. Only a single American had died, with four wounded. It was also the sole instance in the entire war that shore batteries turned back an amphibious invasion force. The marines on Wake Island were exultant when the Japanese withdrew. One gunner at Battery L said of the event, quote, You had thought we'd won the war. End of quote. The three-day-long bombing raids against Wake Island also went quite terrible. After the brutal two weeks of Japanese victory after victory after victory, Wake Island stood out in defiance. A sergeant assigned to Devereux's staff said of this, quote, I am very certain every man on the island grew two inches at least. Several people stopped by and congratulated Devereux, and we had this kind of hope. We felt great. We were Marines. 
weren't we? End of quote. The truth was, Wake Island could not hold out much longer, though. Only two aircraft remained serviceable. The island was short on ammunition, equipment, and manpower. They needed reinforcements, supplies, and having failed these, evacuation and abandonment to the enemy would be necessary. Admiral Kajuka had underestimated Wake Island's defensive capabilities, and as a result was forced to limp back to base, having lost two warships with others damaged. Yet despite his complete failure, Admiral Kajuka was not relieved from his command. Instead, Admiral Inoue offered him more assistance for a second attack. Since successful operations had ended against Pearl Harbor, Guam, and the Gilbert Islands, all in one week's time, there were now a few forces available to help Kajuka. Thus, Inoue assigned him a handful of cruisers, destroyers, and transports alongside two aircraft carriers, the Soryu and Hiryu, and plenty of Japanese marines. Now, Kajuka had better odds to prove his worth to the other commanders. He would make his second attempt to take Wake Island. On the American side, Admiral Frank Fletcher's Task Force 14 with the carrier USS Saratoga were tasked with the relief of Wake Island by Admiral Husband Kimmel. Kimmel had also ordered Admiral Wilson Brown's Task Force 11 with the carrier USS Lexington to perform a raid on the island of Jalut in the Marshalls as a diversion to protect Fletcher's approach. Now, Husband Kimmel was relieved of his command on December the 18th. Vice Admiral William S. Pye became the acting commander in his place until Admiral Chester Nimitz would take over on December the 31st. Vice Admiral Pye had some reservations about Kimmel's plan to relieve Wake Island. He thought it was too risky. It's actually quite interesting to note that Pai seemed to be very gun-shy about engaging the IJN, because on December the 6th, when asked about the IJN as a threat, he was the guy that remarked, quote, The Japanese will not go to war with the United States. We are too big, too powerful, and too strong. End of quote. Well, it doesn't seem... America is too strong at the moment. Despite his hesitancy, he allowed the relief force to depart on December the 15th for Wake. But on December the 20th, Pai received a report that the Japanese were renewing their assault on the island, and that one or possibly two IGN carriers were providing support this time. Two days later, Pai sent word to Fletcher, calling the operation off and to return to Pearl Harbor. Fletcher threw his hat angrily onto the deck as his staff officers urged him to disobey the order. Fletcher refused, believing Pai knew something he didn't. Of this moment, he recalled, quote, The news rocketed through the ship and the fleet was received with curses. Men hung their heads and wept. End of quote. Later, when President Roosevelt received word of the fall of Wake Island, he called the news, quote, Worse than Pearl Harbor. President Roosevelt 
would never quite forgive Admiral Pai for his decision to abandon the defenders. On December the 22nd, Kachuka had returned to Wake Island, and aircraft lifted off Soryu and Hiryu to take out the air power that was left on Wake. 33 dive bombers and 6 fighters attacked Wake Island, and the last two Wildcats were no match, they were easily taken out. The remaining surviving pilots, having no more aircraft, were assigned as riflemen. The Japanese aircraft now roamed freely over the skies as the American ground defenders prepared for an invasion. Kachuka did not want to square off against Devereaux's 5-inch guns in another duel again, so he would land many of his forces in the south shore of the island. Kachuka also staged diversionary bombardments on Pili Island. In the dark, rain swept early morning of December the 23rd. At 2.35 a.m., the Japanese Marines, who we should be calling Special Naval Landing Force, by the way, but it's going to be easier for the story to just call them Marines, well, about 580 of them began to land ashore on the south shore of Wake Island, while a further 100 landed on the south shore of Wilkie's Island. Lieutenant Robert Hanna, manning a three-inch gun, began to fire on the patrol boats used to transport the Japanese Marines. He was backed up by grounded pilots who took up arms, led by Major Putnam. Hanna was able to take out two Japanese patrol boats, but as the Japanese managed to get onto the island, this cut the communication. As the Japanese began landing at various points, Devereaux's Leathernecks left their gun pits to meet the invaders as infantry would. The grounded pilots and surviving ground personnel joined in. For 11 hours at close range combat, the Marines, pilots, sailors, and contractors inflicted heavy losses on the Japanese. At one point, they wiped out a beachhead of nearly 100 Japanese Marines. Elsewhere, they delivered an effective counterattack against the Japanese trying to overrun the airfield, forcing the enemy back something like 900 yards. Now because the Japanese had cut communication, Devereaux and Commander Cunningham were basically in the dark at this point. Devereaux ordered his forces from Pele to mount a last line of defense called Potter's Line right in front of his command post. A small force of Japanese had infiltrated undetected on the eastern end of the airfield by this point. Now they advanced up to Potter's line. At Wilkie's, Captain Platt and his forces were quickly surrounded by a hundred Japanese. Thus, he performed a surprise attack, inflicting heavy casualties upon them. Commander Cunningham received discouraging reports from all three islands that there were simply too many Japanese and too few Americans. So Commander Cunningham radioed Pearl Harbor to state, quote, Enemy on island, issue in doubt. Japanese aircraft and warships were beyond the range of the few remaining shore batteries as they shelled pockets of American resistance. Devereaux was unable to contact any of his strong points he had no idea what was happening a few yards beyond his command post. He later reflected on this moment, quote, I tried to think of something we might do to keep going, 
but there wasn't anything. We could keep on expending lives, but we could not buy anything with them. When the communications went dark, it was at that time Commander Cunningham received word from the Navy that Task Force 14's relief force, it was not coming. The paint was on the wall. Cunningham gave the surrender orders at 7 a.m. He was trying to save as many lives as possible. Devereaux and Sergeant Donald R. Malik both took white cloth, tied it to mop handles, and walked across the island ordering survivors to lay down their weapons. Stunned defenders began to toss their rifle bolts, destroying their delicate range-finding instruments, drained hydraulic fluid from recoil cylinders, and surrendered. As Devereaux approached a Japanese officer to formally surrender, the man offered Devereaux a cigarette and said he had attended the San Francisco Fair of 1939. Over on Wilkie's Island, the surprise counterattack had killed over a hundred Japanese, at the cost of 11 Marines and 5 wounded. 49 U.S. Marines were dead, 70 U.S. civilians, including 10 indigenous Chamados. There was also quite a few wounded. 433 U.S. personnel would survive to be captured by the Japanese. The Japanese paid a heavy price. 381 men, on top of 28 aircraft that were shot down and damaged. Enraged by their losses, the Japanese treated their new prisoners, military or civilian, quite brutally. They stripped them naked, others to their underwear with hands tied behind their backs with telephone wire, some with a second wire looped tightly around their necks so if they lowered their arms, they would strangle themselves. Personal items were stolen. Wounds were ignored. The prisoners were jammed into two suffocating concrete ammunition bunkers before they were herded to the airstrip and set upon there for two days in the hot sun. Eventually, they were given food and clothes. Admiral Kachuka showed up in his white dress uniform with a samurai sword and read out a proclamation to the assembled prisoners. The Japanese interpreter concluded, quote, The Emperor has graciously presented you with your lives. Some Marines croaked out, Well, thank this son of a bitch for me. For the next 10 days, the prisoners remained on the island until January the 11th when Admiral Kajuka informed them they would be transferred. The next day they were taken aboard the Nitamaru, where they were forced to run a gauntlet of cursing, spitting, strikes with fists, and heavy belts and clubs. They would have several buckets for toilets, no heat or ventilation, and for six days given only tiny amounts of food. Some of the prisoners would be placed in Yokohama, others in Shanghai. During the voyage to China, Lieutenant Toshio Seto Commander of the Japanese Guard Detachment selected five Americans, three sailors, and two Marines at random, blindfolded them, and bound them. They were brought on deck, surrounded by 150 Japanese sailors. The Americans were then forced to kneel as Sato read out loud, 
You have killed many Japanese soldiers in battle. For what you have done, you are now going to die as representatives of American soldiers. The five Americans were beheaded and used for bayonet practice before being tossed overboard. 380 prisoners never left Wake Island. They were kept there to rebuild the island's defenses. Those unfortunate souls slaved until October of 1943. When the U.S. Navy force was close enough to take the island, the Japanese executed them all. The battle for Wake Island was over, but in other places across the Asia-Pacific, the war was just heating up. We now look to Borneo, where Major General Kawaguchi's forces had taken possession of Miri and Seria. Kawaguchi was aware there was no roads linking the major settlements of Sarawak, so he organized further landings at key points along the west coast, including Jesselton, Sandakan, and Kuching. Kuching was the only place that was seriously defended, as a defending commander, Brooke Popham, said. The only place which it was decided to hold was Kuching. The reason for this being not only that there was a modern airfield at this location, but that its occupation by the enemy might give access to Dutch airfields in Borneo. Furthermore, it would also give the enemy access to Singapore. When news of the amphibious landings reached Kuching, the Allied High Command set to build its airfield defenses. Work was delayed on the 19th of December due to Japanese bombing raids, which did little material damage, but a large part of the native population began to flee the town, and thus labor became a huge issue. On December the 22nd, Kawaguchi had two battalions leave Miri en route to Kaching, in a convoy escorted by one cruiser and three destroyers. The small convoy was spotted by a Dutch flying boat which radioed a warning to the Dutch command. The Dutch were going to launch aircraft from Singawang No. 2 airfield, but they were bombed by 24 Japanese aircraft trying to hold them down. This prompted the Dutch to move their aircraft to Palembang. Not all was bad, however, as the submarine HNLMS K-14, commanded by Lieutenant Carol Gronveld, would heed the call to war. Grunveld took his submarine and managed to infiltrate the convoy. At 8.40 p.m. on December the 23rd, he managed to sink the Hiyoshi Maru and Katori Maru, sending hundreds of Japanese troops into the sea. Meanwhile, the K-16 submarine, commanded by Lieutenant L.J. Yarman, torpedoed the IGN destroyer Sagiri, a bit further north of Kuching. The torpedo hit Sagiri's own torpedo stock, exploding her and setting the ship on fire. It killed over 121 of her officers and crew instantly. And thus, the K-16 became the first Allied submarine in the Pacific War to sink a Japanese warship. Unfortunately, the victorious K-16 was later sunk by the Japanese submarine I-66 on her way back to Serabaja. The surviving Japanese forces landed and were met by the 2nd Battalion of the 15th Punjab Regiment, the only significant British military force on Borneo. They put up a stiff resistance, but they were simply outnumbered and had to pull back. 
By Christmas Day, Colonel Lane received orders from Singapore commanding him to destroy the airfield. It was too late to change back to a mobile defense and there was no point in attempting to defend a now useless airfield. So he asked permission to withdraw as soon as possible into Dutch-held Northwest Borneo. The Punjab regiment was forced to retreat through the jungle to Singawang. British-held Borneo was falling apart. Now I'd like to just talk a bit about the bitter situation in Hong Kong, which honestly, I will admit, I have a bit of a bias towards. You know, it's one of the few events in the Pacific War where you find a large amount of Canadian forces. The last time we had spoke, the Japanese had invaded the island of Hong Kong and captured the Wong Ni Chung Gap, shattering the island's central defenses. This would cause General Maltby to separate his forces into a West and East Brigade. With the enemy establishing on the high hills from Mount Parker to Jardin's lookout, General Maltby ordered his East Brigade to withdraw southward towards the Stanley Peninsula. If you check out a map of Hong Kong Island, Stanley's Peninsula is basically this very narrow southern tip of it. Meanwhile, the West Brigade had lost its HQ when the Wong Chung Gap was taken. They were trying desperately to defend a line across the western part of the island now. So again, if you're looking at a map of Hong Kong Island, the capital city of Victoria is in the northwest, and along the way to get to it, there are various hills and mountains. A bunch of Winnipeg grenadiers were holding Mount Cameron and were being dive-bombed and artillery struck without mercy there. By December the 22nd, they were forced to retreat as the Japanese night attacks became too ferocious. Imagine holding pillboxes or trenches at night and hearing grenades being lobbed over constantly. It was terrifying stuff. So because of the retreat, a new defensive line was established on the western slopes of Mount Cameron. It would consist of a Middlesex regiment, an Indian battalion, and some Royal Scots. The retreating Winnipeg Grenadiers took up Bennett's Hill, which is just a bit further southwest. A little bit more out of the way, so to say. So the West Brigade was against the ropes trying desperately to hold the last hills and mountains between the enemy and Victoria City. They were all very exhausted, but would continue to defend the area while the East Brigade held on to Stanley. By December the 19th, the East Brigade had set up a defensive line reaching from Palm Villa to Stanley Mound, with its HQ being set up on Stone Hill. So yet again, if you were looking at a map of Hong Kong Island, basically the entrance to Stanley was now a defensive line. Now at this point, the East and West Brigades had their communications severed. A Rajput battalion that had been defending the northern beaches was virtually wiped out. The East Brigade now consisted of little more than some Royal Rifles, some companies of Volunteer Defense Corps, and some Middlesex machine gunners. The Royal Rifles were positioned in the Repulse Bay area, just a bit northeast of the new defensive line of Stanley. It was not an enviable position. The Royal Rifles were exhausted, deprived of hot meals for several days, and having to catch sleep while simultaneously manning weapon pits. Now, so many different platoons had tried from multiple directions to retake the Wang Nichong Gap when Maltby had ordered Operation Order Number 6, which, as we had learnt in a previous episode, was a complete catastrophe. 
The Japanese eventually reach the Repulse Bay area and begin to attack the Royal Rifles there. The Royal Rifles meet them head-on and they actually drive out the Japanese over a number of hill positions. They also manage to take out a group holding onto the crossroads of a reservoir. Yet none of these attacks can be maintained. A lot of the companies become separated, and a lot of them are running out of vital motor ammunition required to hold their positions. By December the 21st, the Japanese had seized Violet Hill and the Repulse Bay Hotel. The Royal Rifles were ordered to retake the hill and manage to ambush the Japanese pack train, but soon were brought under heavy fire from the top of the hill, and they were forced to withdraw. Now the Royal Rifles were reduced from a strength of 177 to just 68 at this point. A series of costly attempts were made to stop the Japanese advance south as the situation for the western sector was deteriorating horribly. The ridge in the Repulse Bay saw some of the worst atrocities of the battle. There the Japanese executed 47 prisoners upon taking the ridge, many of which were Canadian. At the overbays, the Japanese proceeded to execute 14 other prisoners. When the Japanese took the U-Cliff, a further 7 to a possible 36 were also murdered. Later on, 50 bodies would be found lying on the road near these three locations. They were beheaded, bayoneted, and some even lit on fire using gasoline. In the evening of December the 21st, Lieutenant Colonel Holm, now the senior surviving Canadian officer, spoke to Lieutenant Colonel Sutcliffe, who was commanding the forces of the Winnipeg Grenadiers trying to hold the crest of Mount Cameroon. Sutcliffe reported to him, quote, My battalion was decimated, and yet the high command was ordering my men to make counterattacks. So I asked Holm if he could do nothing to stop what was considered a useless waste of lives. End of quote. Lieutenant Colonel Holm took this to heart, and he began to inform Brigadier Wallace that he wanted to see the governor immediately. He would say to Wallace, Sutcliffe's battalion was exhausted. Further resistance would only result in the waste of valuable Canadian lives. As a senior Canadian officer, he felt gravely responsible. The British commander Wallace persuaded Holm to wait until the next morning. Holm, the next morning, was more than ever convinced of the futility of the resistance. It's important to note that by this point on Hong Kong, the relationship between the senior Canadian and British officers was all but poisoned. Let alone imagine how an Indian or Chinese volunteer force was feeling. The Canadians distrusted the British commanders who, for the most part, got everything wrong in the whole goddamn operation. So at this point, Lieutenant Colonel Holm was threatening a separate Canadian surrender as they had lost all confidence in Brigadier Wallace of the East Brigade, Maltby and other British staff officers. To the Canadians, it seemed like they were being sacrificed to ensure a symbolic honor of the garrison as Royal Rifles Major John H. Price put it, quote, There were plenty of Canadian officers who had battle experience in the First World War, who were competent to judge as to the possibility of a successful outcome of the defense of the island. Consider the facts. 
the island had been split in two by a vastly superior Japanese force. On the Eastern Brigade front, which included the Stanley Peninsula, the Royal Rifles and one company of Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Forces were the only troops who had fought continuously day and night, without rest since the landing on the 17th, and were still carrying on all the fighting. By December the 21st, they had been greatly reduced in fighting strength, and by the 23rd, there were only around 500 in all ranks. It required no great military genius to predict the outcome of the battle once the Japanese had landed on the island, with their control of the sea and air, and great superiority in weapons and men. Holm felt, and I think rightly, that he would be derelict in his duty to his men and to the Canadian government if he did not communicate his conclusions to the highest authority. Also, neither Holm nor his officers had any faith in Brigadier Wallace's judgment, or in his conduct of operations. And who had better right than he had? He and his men were bearing the brunt of the fighting, and they knew from first-hand knowledge the strength and armament of the forces against them. The High Command had consistently shown an inability to grasp the realities of the situation, and to pursue tactics which might have prolonged the struggle, but could not have altered the final result. End of quote. Brigadier Wallace telephoned Maltby on the morning of December the 24th and told him, You will not chuck it unless you run out of ammunition, water, or food. Do not talk of surrender. Put Colonel home in a hospital. End of quote. During all of the chaos, on the evening of December the 23rd, orders were given for a general withdrawal to Stanley Peninsula. The defensive line had broke. The exhausted Royal Rifles were taken out to Stanley Fort, well down in the peninsula, for some much-needed rest. However, they would be soon recalled to action as the Japanese advanced on the Volunteer Defense Corps, which was left there, and they could not even hope to try and delay them. At midnight of the 24th, the Japanese made it to a field hospital at St. Stephen's College. And this is where our story is going to take one of its darkest turns. So I would guess it's at this point that I should say this is a warning. This will be rather graphic stuff. At the hospital, two doctors in charge, Lieutenant Dr. Colonel Black and his second-in-command, Captain Dr. Whitney, barred the front door, and Black called out, You can't come in here. This is a hospital. With deliberate aim, one of the Japanese soldiers raised his rifle and shot the doctor through the head. The Japanese mob then surged into the hospital ward, and the body of Dr. Black was repeatedly bayoneted as he lay at the door. The Japanese proceeded to enter the hospital, and a massacre of unprecedented ferocity took place. The Japanese ripped the bandages off the wounded patients and plunged their bayonets into amputated arms and legs before finishing them off with bullets. In half an hour, 56 wounded soldiers had been massacred, while the nursing staff looked on in horror. They cut off ears, gouged out eyes, and beat and raped the nurses. I would like to read to you 
some testimony made by Sister Miss Amelia Fleming Gordon, who witnessed what is now called the St. Stephen's College Massacre, something probably unknown to many outside of Canada or Hong Kong. It is as follows, quote, Just before dawn, there was a terrific howl, and shortly afterwards, Japanese arrived in large numbers at the front entrance. Captain Scotchner was pulled out, and shortly afterwards, he instructed me to come out and put my hands above my head. They took my steel helmet and cracked me over the head with it, searched my pockets, took my red crossband, and removed my watch that I had. They shouted for everyone to come out, and everyone did except Sergeant Parkin, who attempted to run past, but he was shot dead. We were all marched single file into the adjacent classrooms. The patients were also brought in. Here, we remained for about an hour or two, crowded and huddled together, with no room to lie or sit down. Several of our patients, between 50 to 60 of them, I imagine, were killed during the day. After two hours, we were marched again in single file upstairs, and I saw dead bodies and blood covering the stairs. We were then put into different classrooms. I went into a small room with four VADs. They were Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Begg, Mrs. Buxton, and Mrs. Simons. There was also five other Chinese women. At 4.30, some Japanese soldiers came in and removed Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Beggs, and Mrs. Buxton. I never saw them again. One of the Chinese girls told Mrs. Simons that they had taken out the three women to kill them, and they would soon return for us. We were later ordered to bandage wounded Japanese soldiers. They took us to another room overlooking the tennis court, where there were five dead bodies of Red Cross personnel. We were then made to sit on these dead bodies. Then I and Mrs. Fideo were taken to two other rooms. In my room, there were two other dead bodies lying there, and the Japanese guards told me to take off my clothes while they removed theirs. Before touching me, they apparently became afraid that someone was coming and made me put my clothes on again, and I was returned to the room where Mrs. Simons and Mrs. Leving still were. Mrs. Fideo joined us almost immediately in a weeping state and told us that she had been raped. We were left in peace for a short time only. Three soldiers then came in and took me into a small adjacent bathroom. They knocked me down and they all raped me one after another and then they let me return. Miss Fideo was then taken and underwent a similar experience. Both Mrs. Fideo and I were taken out a second time and raped, but Mrs. Simons and Mrs. Leving remained untouched. We were all now desperate and discovering there was a Yale lock on the door, we pulled it and locked ourselves in. They returned several times during the night, but did not force an entrance. End of quote. Rifleman Sidney Skelton of D Company of the Royal Rifles had this to say. The Japs stormed the hospital, throwing grenades and bayoneting the wounded. I had rolled under a bed, and I lay as still as I could. A Jap turned me over, kicked me in the face, and tore off my bandages. 
I didn't move or make a sound. The guy must have thought I was dead and took off. I heard screams coming from outside. Terrible screams. I can still hear in my head 20 years later. I saw a Jap coming into the hospital and take men outside at random. One of the wounded they dragged away from his bed, they cut off his ears, and they ripped out his tongue. They then took him outside and shot him. I heard a British officer shout out, If you can walk or crawl to the door, you may be allowed to live. So at this point, Skeleton tried to crawl to the door. I was really confused from the anesthetic, and I started to crawl, dragging my blanket towards the door. A guy just ahead of me, a Hong Kong volunteer with a clasp knife in his belt, but his hands were raised. He was bayoneted as soon as he went out the door. The Padre then grabbed me and slapped me to my senses. I'm alive today, thanks to him. A Japanese officer entered the hospital and saw Skelton, with his wounds bleeding. He tore Skelton's watch, hit him with the flat side of his sword, and ordered him to go upstairs. Though badly wounded, Skelton crawled up the stairs and into a room that would become his prison for the next two days. Skelton spent nearly four years as a captive, first in Hong Kong and then later in Japan, where he worked as a slave laborer in a coal mine. Somehow, he made it home, where he lived in Scarsborough, Ontario. In a 1961 interview, he said, 24 years have passed, but I never forget Christmas of 1941. I invite anybody listening to this podcast to look up stories of the St. Stephen's Massacre. I literally chose two at random that I had never come across before. If you are truly interested in the horror that is war atrocities committed in the Pacific War, there is but one book I can recommend above all else. It's called The Knights of Bushido, A History of Japanese War Crimes During World War II by Edward Frederick Langley Russell. I myself have studied the history of genocide outside of the Pacific War, and I had to read countless books on atrocities, particularly the Bosnian genocide. But I can say this, this book is one of the hardest reads I've ever had. The Japanese soldiers bayoneted any and all British, Canadian, Indian, and Chinese soldiers who were not capable of hiding within the hospital. The survivors and their nurses were imprisoned in rooms as a second wave of Japanese troops arrived at the scene. Many nurses were gang-raped mutilated, and murdered. The following morning, the Japanese would order all the bodies to be cremated just outside the hall to hide the incident. Estimates range, but they think about 150 bodies were cremated. Back on December the 21st, General Maltby had sent a communique to the war office indicating that resistance was almost at an end. According to Sir John Kennedy, the Director of Military Operations in London, quote, 
we had to decide whether to order the troops to fight it out or give the governor permission to surrender as he wished to do. The psychological aspect was of an overriding importance, particularly with the oriental enemy. If we fought to the last round and the last man at Hong Kong, we should gain an indirect military advantage in that the Japanese would judge our powers of resistance elsewhere by the same standard. Therefore, my opinion was that, although it was an unpleasant decision, the garrison should be told to fight it out. When Prime Minister Churchill was informed, he sent a typical Churchillian message back. It is as follows. There must be no thought of surrender. The enemy must be compelled to expend the utmost life and equipment. There must be vigorous fighting in the inner defenses and, if need be, from house to house. Every day that you are able to maintain your resistance will help the Allied cause. Both the governor and the general had little choice but to agree. On Christmas, the governor's message was, Fight on, hold fast for king and empire. At 1 p.m., the D Company of the Winnipeg Grenadiers launched an attack into Stanley, pushing the Japanese back, but eventually were pushed back themselves, all the way to Stanley Fort. By the afternoon, it was clear further resistance was futile. At 3.30, Governor Young and General Maltby surrendered in person to General Sakai at the Japanese HQ stationed on the third floor of the Peninsula Hotel. This was the first time on which a British Crown Colony had surrendered to an invading force. The garrison had held out for 17 days, and this day, on Christmas, is known in Hong Kong, and for many of us in Canada, as Black Christmas. The Japanese had up to 1,895 dead with 6,000 casualties. For the Allied defenders, this was 1,111 who had died, 1,167 who went missing, and 1,362 who were wounded. There are some estimates saying that around 2,000 Allied forces were killed, including around 300 Canadians. The Japanese would take prisoner over 5,072 British, 1,689 Canadians, and 3,829 Indians, amongst others, most likely Chinese volunteers, which were estimated to be around 357, for a grand total of 10,947 people. They would all be sent to different POW camps, and of the Canadians, another 267 would die in those camps, mainly due to neglect and abuse. Again, with the time allotted to me for this podcast, I could never cover all the aspects of this great battle. Upon starting the research for this very subject, I found a video, and it was by who else? Kings and Generals. And I can't stress enough, for those of you who want a more comprehensive look at the battle in its entirety, please go check it out. For myself, on my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, I had invited a fellow colleague of mine who graduated at the same university, 
I asked him, hey, would you like to do a podcast? Uh, not too much preparations. It'll be on the Battle of Hong Kong and the Canadian experience. When he showed up, he summarized the entire thing off the top of his head. So I felt compelled, despite the narration being a little bit awkward, mind you, I felt compelled to try and make it a full documentary. So I edited in a lot of different things, animated it, showed clips and actual wartime footage. And then I added at the end, because it was a podcast discussion, what happened to the Hong Kong people after this? Because while the Canadians and the rest of the defenders were sent off to POW camps, the Chinese would fight on in guerrilla warfare and they would go through much, much hardship that we can't possibly go into right now. But it's quite an untold tale of horror, to say the least. So I implore you, go watch the video that Kings and Generals did. It's magnificent, and it really does showcase the entire battle thoroughly. And if you'd like, go check out my episode, and please be lenient, uh, as my friend is not exactly used to narration, so it was a little bit um, choppy, we'll say. It's not too bad, it's just I will make a note. It is a little bit harder to listen to than my normal stuff. Now, you would think that this would be the end to the episode, because that was quite a major story. But no, we have a very important story to tell about the Philippines this week. If you thought our friend Dougie MacArthur had screwed the pooch with the Clarkfield disaster, wait till you hear about his initial defense of the Philippines from the invading Japanese. In the Philippines, Douglas MacArthur's Manila headquarters had recovered from its equilibrium after the chaotic first days of the war. After Luzon's sea and air bases were completely pulverized by Japanese airstrikes, Douglas MacArthur began to prepare his forces for the imminent main Japanese offensive. The most probable invasion site was going to be in the Lingian Gulf. If you're looking at a map of the Philippines, the Lingian Gulf is in the northwest on the main island of Luzon. Now we spoke in some depth about War Plan Orange 3 and Rainbow Plan 5. Something like 40 years of war planning had envisioned that all the defenders would pull back behind fortified lines bisecting the neck of what is the Bataan Peninsula, which commanded the sea approach to the Manila Bay. There they would dig in and await rescue, which honestly was never going to happen. But nonetheless, they would hold out for as long as they could at this focal point. Yet for our friend Dougie, he had a different vision, one that would defend the Philippines in its entirety. MacArthur could not stomach a plan that yielded the country to a foreign invader, you see. He hoped instead to meet and annihilate the enemy at their beachheads. Such a strategy required superior air power, highly mobile infantry divisions, and a naval fleet that could come to their rescue. And all of this simply did not exist. Author John Costello contended this. War Plan Orange 3 remained the cornerstone of the U.S. military strategy because there was no acceptable alternative. End of quote. With the forces MacArthur had at his disposal, War Plan Orange 3 was the most solid defense plan if orchestrated and implemented properly. Keywords, properly. 
Well, toss that all out of the window, because Dougie did not implement Warplan Orange 3 when he should have. On December the 21st, MacArthur had around 32,000 American troops with an estimated 120,000 strong Philippine army. The defenders massively outnumbered their Japanese attackers, but like we talked about, the vast majority of these forces were untrained and ill-equipped. The first Japanese troop landings had come ashore in northern Luzon on December the 10th, taking out many of the airfields. Now, an invasion force of over 50,000 men, which were well-equipped with light tanks, a ton of artillery, were all sailing from Formosa in a huge fleet convoy of 48 freighters and camouflage troop ships to land at the Lingian Gulf by December the 22nd. Baiji Matsuda, a merchant marine officer on the freighter Arizona Maru, recalled the invasion convoy to be, quote, It sailed in two long lines extending beyond the horizon in both directions. End of quote. Admiral Hart's American submarine force that had survived the Japanese bombings were expected to dish out heavy punishment on the enemy invasion convoy. But their performance would prove to be very disappointing. Despite the 29th submarine force constituting the largest submarine force ever assembled by the United States at that point, for a plethora of reasons such as faulty torpedoes, poor training, inept commanding officers, and simple bad luck, they caused little to any damage to the convoys. A huge issue they faced was actually the loss of an adequate communication system because the low-frequency radio tower at Stangley Point was taken out. Another large issue was the fact that the commanders of these submarines were conditioned by pre-war doctrine, which held that fleet submarines were more of scouting vessels, and they were much more vulnerable to air and anti-submarine attacks than they actually were. The shallow inland waters of the Lingian Gulf did not help either, and it made it extremely difficult to maneuver for submarines. So in the end, the submarine force was able to take out a single troop ship. Yeah, 29 submarines. After that, a few B-17s and the Navy's PBYs flying from Australia did manage to give some licks to the convoy, but casualties were also quite minimal. Honestly, the Japanese faced greater losses as a result of choppy seas and high winds. Several of their boats were overturned. Raiji Matsuda recalled, It was terribly difficult to load soldiers and supplies on the bobbling boats. Enemy planes struck at us at dawn, aiming primarily at the beachheads. Bullets from strafing planes chased our boats to the shore. Arizona Maru poured fire into the sky. We saw enemy planes spiraling down, trailing smoke. Our ships were rocked by concussions of exploding bombs and the force of walls of water striking our sides. Most of the ships, however, unloaded successfully and the landing force began its drive on Manila. End of quote. It was to be the largest and most successful amphibious troop landing up to that point in history. The force got ashore with most of its artillery and supplies and around half of its tanks. 
The failure of the submarines prompted MacArthur to ask Admiral Hart, quote, What in the world is the matter with your submarines? Admiral Hart would later recount, MacArthur is inclined to cut my throat and perhaps the Navy in general. So alongside the failure of the submarines and the Air Force to hammer the convoys as envisioned, you would imagine it's time to implement War Plan Orange 3 and hunker down. But no. MacArthur placed the North Luzon Force under the command of General Wainwright due to the recent Japanese landings in the north. Then MacArthur sent his crack troops, some of the Philippine scouts, the 4th Marines, and the 31st Infantry, passively into the south. It was to be the ill-trained Filipino army that he sent to the actual beachheads that were going to be invaded. Two Philippine Commonwealth Army divisions were sent to protect a 120-mile coastline, one of which had artillery. The Americans anticipated a landing at the southern end of the Gulf, so they placed the Philippine 21st Division with its artillery batteries there. In the northern sector was the Philippine 11th Division, supplemented by the 71st Division, which had about 10 weeks of training, and few of which knew how to operate their antiquated on-field rifles. The 26th Cavalry Regiment would be stationed en route 3, 12 miles south of Rosario. The crack troops, as we said, were at the Layak Junction as a rearguard. Harold K. Johnson of the 57th Infantry on Luzon, who would later become the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, later described MacArthur's decision to fight the Japanese at the beachheads of the Lingian Gulf as a, quote, tragic error. The Japanese army brushed aside the green poorly equipped conscripts of the Philippine army who broke ranks and ran for their lives, and you can't blame them. Artillery units manned by American troops were left exposed to Japanese bonsai charges. MacArthur was besieged with requests from his commanding officers in the field for permission to withdraw at the offset of the engagement. Wainwright sent the 11th Division and the 26th Cavalry Regiment to defend the Gulf north of Damortis, and also sent a regiment of the 71st Division to San Fernando to stop the Japanese from advancing from Vigan. Simultaneously, the Japanese 9th Regiment at Biang supported them with an attack to the north on San Fernando and also advanced on Baguio. Acting with haste, the Japanese would manage to reunite around San Fernando, leaving the regiment of the 71st in a very difficult position and forcing them to retreat back to Baguio. The Japanese advance was just too quick, and the 71st could not flank nor prepare their positions in time. By midnight, they were withdrawing. Further south, forces had landed north of the Mortis and were en route to Rosario, where the Philippine 11th Division met them head-on. It was a minor skirmish, as the Japanese had tank regiments handy. The Philippine 11th Division was completely routed. Wainwright received reports that the Japanese were advancing with light motor vehicles, bicycles, and tanks along the coastal road to Rosario. And I really want to make a point here that Lieutenant General Jonathan Skinny Wainwright 
fought quite a brilliant defensive campaign despite the absolute chaos that was going on. During all of this, he enabled Major General Parker, who controlled the southern Luzon forces, to extricate 15,000 troops. Wainwright called for tank reinforcements to help him hold off the Japanese advances towards Manila, and General Sutherland, yet again Sutherland, refused him and told him, quote, Ask the general. Well, MacArthur would only send five tanks. And these five tanks met the Japanese on the coastal road to Rosario and managed to push them back to Demarktis. However, the U.S. tanks were eventually battered by Japanese 47mm anti-tank guns, and then the 26th Cavalry simply had to withdraw. Thus, Rosario became a focal point of resistance, and there Japanese tanks penetrated the 26th Cavalry rearguard, causing massive casualties. Having taken out five U.S. tanks by the nighttime, Homa had secured Rosario and the immediate area of the Lingian Gulf. Within a single day, the Japanese secured a large section of the Lingian Gulf coastline as a beachhead, and now were advancing north, south, and east. MacArthur's planned active defense operation to stop the Japanese on the beaches had completely failed. Major Legrand Pic Diller, MacArthur's press officer, because remember he had those, put out a statement about the Japanese landings at Lingan Bay. I will read to you its headline from the New York Times. Quote, Japanese forces wiped out in western Luzon. This segment is from the United Press. There had been a three-day battle with 154 enemy boats sunk. Not a single Japanese soldier had reached the shores. End of quote. As you can imagine, MacArthur's press releases formed the basis of the United States newspaper reports and were almost entirely fabricated stories about battles that never took place. Alongside duping the press, MacArthur began a campaign of placing blame on Admiral Thomas Hart and stating that the enemy was actually 80 to 100,000 strong that landed at Lingian Bay, more than double what they actually were. And if you think I am being too hard on dugout MacArthur, well, I am. Also, take everything with a grain of salt, because, my god, it was not easy for historians to figure out exactly what happened in all this chaos, because there's a lot of lies and misinformation going on, not just from Douglas MacArthur, mind you. When Wainwright was forced to withdraw to the line of the Agno River, he called on MacArthur to give him his well-trained former command, the Philippine Division, to enable him to launch a surprise counterattack. MacArthur refused and held them in reserve. Nonetheless, Wainwright would manage to hold up the Japanese advance by leading his troops in a spirited defense, and he blew up over 184 bridges in the process. By December the 24th, a second Japanese force of 7,000 came ashore on Lehman Bay, 60 miles southeast of Manila, on the east coast of Luzon. This was a cruel surprise, to say the least. Now, two Japanese armies were advancing on the capital of Manila. MacArthur's dispersed and overstretched forces were now caught in a pincer movement as the Japanese consolidated their hold over Luzon, 
marching towards Manila. MacArthur, over at his headquarters in Manila, began to radio General Marshall asking if carriers could bring pursuit planes within range of the Philippines, stating, quote, Can I expect anything along that line? Marshall replied to the rather ridiculous question that according to the Navy, this was impossible and MacArthur would have to rely on his own planes. Those planes were, of course, being already ferried to Australia at this point. Finally realizing holding the Japanese at bay without using his three combat-trained regiments and still refusing to commit them was not working, to say the least. So on December the 24th, after 40 hours of colossal setbacks, MacArthur declared the capital city of Manila an open city. He told Brereton to send the remaining B-17s out of harm's way, stating, quote, You go south. You can do more good with the bombers you have left and those you should be receiving soon than you can here. End of quote. Then MacArthur issued the order, put Warplan Orange 3 into effect. Around 75,000 troops, consisting of 15,000 American and 60,000 Filipinos, alongside 26,000 refugees, were to flee to Bataan now. The logistical nightmare that ensued should never have occurred in the first place had Warplan Orange 3 been implemented at the offset the way it was supposed to. The situation was absolutely horrible. His forces were caught in giant pincers. Brigadier General Charles Drake's supply corps desperately attempted to move tons of food, ammunition, fuel, and medical supplies to the Bataan Peninsula as they were hampered by air raids, lack of vehicles, lack of personnel, and most importantly, a lack of time. Wainwright's northern Luzon force fought everywhere it could to help delay the Japanese from hitting the fleeing forces moving all of the war equipment. There were over five delaying positions set up in central Luzon alone and a substantial amount of forces were stuck on the various islands of the Philippines. They should have never been deployed to these islands in the first place, let alone fighting all over Luzon. And all of this war equipment, as I must now repeat, as Warplan 3 stated, should have been moved at the offset of hostilities. As a result of the pure chaos, only a portion of the much-needed war supplies would actually make it to the Bataan Peninsula. In addition, the pre-invasion construction of the planned Bataan fortified defensive positions were all completely neglected. MacArthur and his staff folded up shop and sailed in an old coal steamer ship across to the Bay of Corregidor Island, just off Bataan. The president of the Philippines, Manuel Quezon, presently suffering from tuberculosis, made the agonizing decision to go with General MacArthur, fearing for the fate of his people. But he was unwilling to become a collaborator. 
Allied forces traveled north on Route 3 in a long, disorderly convoy of trucks, buses, jeeps, and ox carts. The army shared the road with thousands of civilian refugees all going on foot. Warplan Orange 3 required the Batan Peninsula to be stocked with sufficient food and medical supplies to enable an army of 40,000 troops to withstand a Japanese siege for over six months. They would end up with enough food and medical supplies for a 30-day siege. One thing was going for the Americans, and that was the Japanese were caught completely off guard by the retreat. It goes without saying, coordinated strafing attacks by the Japanese Air Force on densely packed roads to Bataan would have been absolute massacres. Yet, for once during the entire campaign, there did not seem to be that many enemy planes overhead, for the most part. Better yet, the Japanese could have knocked out key bridges on the way to Bataan, completely trapping major pockets of US forces. Just to add to all the chaos, MacArthur placed the Southern Luzon Force Commander, Major General Parker, as the commander of the Bataan defenses. Then he assigned the Southern Luzon Force to Brigadier General Albert Jones. Jones immediately planned to delay a possible Japanese advance through the mountains of Manila, while at the same time fighting an aggressive withdrawal into Bataan. Prior to this, the Japanese under commander Marioka had disembarked at three different locations in southern Luzon. Major General Parker had ordered the 1st and 51st Divisions to move on Legazpi to counter some of these invasion forces, and now he had to switch command all the way over to Bataan simultaneously. So now, in southern Luzon, three Japanese military groups were invading and consolidating their positions to march on Manila. Now, War Plan Orange 3 was initiated, and MacArthur ordered Jones to efficiently coordinate with Wainwright for the retreat to Bataan, because if one of them retreated too fast, then the other would be trapped and annihilated. So Jones established his main defensive line at the town of Los Banos as his Filipino forces were being pushed back heavily from the Gaspi area. Wainwright, in the meantime, began to withdraw to his second line of defense, ranging from the Zambales Mountains to the town of San Jose. On December the 25th, Jolo of the Sulu Islands were also invaded as General Sakaguchi had departed Davio back on the 23rd. He captured the city and its airfield facing little resistance. Now Sakaguchi could use this as his main base to conduct operations against the Dutch-held part of Borneo. From December the 25th to the 28th, Manila was bombed despite being declared an open city. Homa's forces took the towns of Carman, Tayug, San Manuel, San Quintan, but did not manage to rout the fleeing allies just yet. On December the 27th, Wainwright had successfully reached his second line of defense. The South Luzon force, despite its ridiculous circumstances, would manage to withdraw and successfully execute leapfrogging techniques to cross over bridges to get to Bataan. I would be remiss for not bringing up one last thing before we close out for the week. It is alleged on December the 28th, as the Japanese closed in on Manila, that Douglas MacArthur telephoned the mayor of Manila, 
Jorge Vargas from Corregidor asking him to buy $35,000 worth of shares in the Lapanto Mining Company for him. Vargas executed the transaction the following day and Vargas would later recall in later years that the single transaction during the critical stages of the Japanese invasion of the Philippines made Douglas MacArthur a millionaire by the end of the war. This is all alleged information. Take it with a grain of salt. Now outside the conflict, the Thais would sign with the Japanese a treaty of alliance from which they would receive the northmost Malay state that were lost during the previous century. They were also promised the Shan states in Burma that they had lost to the British a century ago. So they would mainly support the Japanese in their offensives against these regions. At the same time this is all occurring, British and American military leaders as well as President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill met at Washington in the Arcadia Conference. The Arcadia Conference would last until January the 14th and will have a very important effect on the war, which we will discuss down the line. But the most important one would be that it's a reaffirmation of the Europe First strategy already proposed in the past conferences. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and help us continue to produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history related content, why don't you go check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. Now this is where I have to leave you for now, but next week we're going to cover the continuation of the Japanese advance down the Malay Peninsula and the American retreat into Bataan. But let me leave you with this. Historian John Keegan wrote of the Bataan defense, quote, If properly defended, it should have resisted attack indefinitely, even though the garrison was short of supplies. Informing their line on the first mountain position, MacArthur's troops made the exact same mistake as the British were simultaneously making in Malaya. They failed to extend their flanks into the jungle on the mountain slopes, and in consequence, their flanks were quickly turned by Japanese infiltrators.